prayer this morning, and we'll get rolling with the lesson. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity to come together. Lord, that you've given us great weather the last couple days to to, uh, melt all the snow and ice so that we can come together. Lord, we thank you for that, and uh, we pray that um, this time that we study your word would be uh, a wonderful time together, that we would learn it, and that we would love it, and that it would change us. And so we pray now that your spirit would work among us, and that you would convince us of the truth of your word. And we pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, I'll invite you to turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. And uh, we are today on our last session looking at um, various biblical texts that relate to the Lord's Supper. So starting next week, we'll turn to the theological summary section, which is the very last part of this series, where we'll be sort of summarizing the doctrine of the Lord's Supper at uh, you know, sort of a systematic level. And uh, that's just kind of the, the uh, time when you want to take the most notes, really, because that's when we just kind of put it all together. All right. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, our last biblical text relating to the Lord's Supper that we want to pay attention to. And uh, it's in this chapter that we find in verse 16. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 we find this very interesting verse that Paul has. And uh, I want to read that for you here, just as we begin. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, as you can imagine, this verse is interpreted in various ways, right, by different Christian traditions. Um, Roman Catholics, for example, will point to this and say, look, see, Paul is saying right there that when we partake of the supper, when we partake of the bread and the wine, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. That's how they're going to understand this. Now, Our task this morning is to take a look at this verse, all right? But we're not just going to look at this one specific verse. Uh, Rather, we're going to look at really most of the chapter 10 here that Paul has for us because this verse is so often taken out of context. We need to read the context of this verse in order to understand what's going on here. Now, I'm going to read for us as we begin here. I'm going to read for us chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Because all those verses are part of Paul's argument here as he's talking about participating in the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So let me read for us those 22 verses. It's a little bit of a lengthier portion, but I think it's important so that we can understand what Paul's saying here. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse 1. Here's what Paul says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we not, or are we stronger than he? Now, um, that was a little bit uh, lengthy of a text for a short Sunday school class like what we're doing here. But I want to walk us through this because we have to understand the context of Paul's argument here that he's making in order to understand what he's saying in this verse. Okay? We can't just take things out of context. Uh, now, I just got to warn you that you know, as we were going through this passage, you might have noticed this, that this, this passage is somewhat complex in terms of what he's arguing and where he's going. Right? He doesn't have a, a full-on perfect like preaching structure. Right? He's, he's uh, going over here, and then he's going over here, and going over here, and going over here. Right? So this text is actually quite difficult to do um, a lot of logical analysis with at first glance, because it's tricky. Uh, one of my favorite things to do when I'm preparing a text and to, to exegete it is I do what, what's called discourse analysis on the text. And that sounds really fancy, but it really isn't. All you're doing is you're analyzing logical relationships between propositions and putting them together and organizing them. And it's super fun if, you, if you're trained in logic, which I am, and so it's, I just love that kind of thing. But, uh, and so that's why I love doing it with Paul. So much fun. This text is really hard to do, though, and it can be sort of confusing as you're going through it. And so I want to just take us through it slowly and really try to understand what he's saying because I think it'll be helpful. So firstly then, looking at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul is referencing the Exodus event. And you'll notice what Paul's talking about here. He says that the fathers, that is the Israelites, right, they were under the cloud, they passed through the sea, and they were baptized. Notice the use of baptism there. And we talked about this when we were dealing with baptism. And he says that after the Israelites were baptized there, right, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, namely they drank from the rock and that rock was Christ. So here's what Paul's doing. As he explains the Exodus event, he says that the Israelites themselves underwent a kind of baptism and the Israelites were partaking in a way of the Lord's Supper. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but if I read Exodus, I might not have concluded that. 
But Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, sees that. And so what he says is that in a certain sense, Israel was baptized and they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. Right? So get that established first. Right? That's what Israel was doing. But he says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And as he goes on, he explains, right, that even though the Israelites were baptized and partaking of the supper, that is, they were observing sort of types of the sacraments in the new covenant, nonetheless, they, many of them, were not saved because of unbelief. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And Paul goes on now to explain how this happened. Even though they're partaking of the sacraments outwardly, on the other hand, on the inside, they're unbelieving. And here's how that was shown. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Just in passing, note that Paul here is, is, uh, is showing us that in the Old Testament, we can see that there are moral examples for us. Sometimes we are so focused on searching for types of Christ in the Old Testament, we forget that sometimes Paul is actually drawing moral exhortation in the Old Testament. This is something I've tried to bring out somewhat in, in my series on Esther that I've been preaching through. Is I'm always looking for types of Christ. We're going to see another one in the sermon today. But I'm also looking for good moral examples. And I'm not afraid to say, you know what? Esther's a great example here. Be like Esther. Or Mordecai is a great example over here. Be like Mordecai. We do both things with the Old Testament. That's what the apostles do. Anyway, Paul says, Israel's partaking of the sacraments and yet many of them were unbelievers. How do we know this? Well, here's how he says. Here's the example. Do not, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Paul here is quoting from Exodus chapter 32, which is a story I'm sure many of us are familiar with, the story of the golden calf. Right? Moses goes up on the mountain. He's receiving instruction, the Ten Commandments from God. And the people of Israel, I mean, they're on the bottom of the mountain. I don't know, they get bored or something, and they decide, hey, what better thing to do right now than make a golden calf? Why not? When you're bored, just make an idol. It sounds like a plan. I mean, after all, they spent generations in Egypt immersed in polytheism where they were worshiping things like cats and calves and that sort of thing. So it's not, they're, well, all they're doing is succumbing to their culture, really. So the Israelites build a golden calf. And they bow down, they worship it. And the text says that they rose up to play. And commentators point out that this is probably not just worship, but they're also offering sacrifices, and there's probably some, some sexual worship going on here too. All right, so it's not good stuff that they're doing. And Paul says, even though the Israelites underwent a kind of baptism and underwent a kind of participation in the Lord's Supper, yet... On the other hand, they're involved in gross idolatry. And not only are they involved in gross idolatry, but verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And Paul there is referencing the events of Numbers chapter 25, where the Israelites started getting into sexual immorality and offering sacrifices to pagan gods. And a plague came upon them and wiped out about 23, 24,000 people, we're told. And so that was a great uh, example of Israel's failure to worship the one true God and to, to be involved in idolatry. 
And so uh, uh, Paul says also in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. There's where the serpents come and and, uh, destroy them and make them sick. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, again, notice what Paul's doing here. He wants to draw a parallel between what the Israelites were doing in the desert and what the Corinthians are doing in their church. On the one hand, he says, the Israelites, they were partaking of the sacraments, and yet they were secretly, or not, well, not really secretly, but what they were truly doing is worshiping demons even. They're offering sacrifices to idols. And on the other hand, Paul wants to show this is something that the Corinthians are involved in doing. Look at what he says here. I'm going to skip down to verse 18. This is why I say Paul's argument's hard to follow here because he's jumping around, so we have to jump around with him. Verse 18, he says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So here he's saying, it, he's looking, at, looking at the people of the Israelites in the desert, right? he's saying, look guys, those Israelites, when they were offering sacrifices to the golden calf, or when the Israelites were involved in all kinds of sacrificial offerings in Numbers 25 to the god Molech, when they were doing that, were they simply just engaging in external exercises? No. When the Israelites were offering sacrifices to idols, they were involved in a spiritual activity. Now Paul says in verse 19, what do I, what, uh, what do I, excuse me, verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? In other words, he's saying, look, when the Israelites offered idols, or excuse me, offered sacrifices to idols, they were involved in a spiritual activity, but not because the idols are anything. In other words, not because the false gods are real. See, Paul knows there's no such thing as any other god than the one true God. Nonetheless, he says, when the Israelites offered sacrifices to idols... They were involved in a real spiritual activity, not because they were offering sacrifices to false gods which don't exist, but because of verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So when the Israelites offer sacrifices to the golden calf or to the gods in Numbers 25, what they're doing is they are offering sacrifices to demons. In other words, they are engaged in real spiritual activity. And that spiritual activity is with demons. Like a spiritual infidelity? Yeah, for sure. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 20, I do not want you to be, what? Participants with demons. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, look, the Israelites were participating with demons. Now this gives us the context that we need to look at verse 16. Actually, let's back up to verse 14. 
Here's what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is what the Israelites are doing, right? Participating with demons. Flee from that idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Notice this word participation showing up throughout this text. Paul says that if you sacrifice something, you're participating in the altar. Paul says if you sacrifice to idols, you're participating in demons. And now he's talking about participating in the blood of Christ and participating in the body of Christ. In other words, when Paul's talking about participation in the body and blood of Christ, he's not trying to talk about a physical presence of Christ in the suffering. That is not what he's after. Rather, the contrast here is between participation with demons and participation with Christ. See, this is a spiritual participation. And it's a participation that happens when we engage in the rituals of Christ or when we engage in the rituals of demons. See, when Paul comes and he talks about participation in the blood of Christ or participation in the body of Christ, some traditions like the Roman Catholics and, some, and the Lutherans too in, in some sense will come to this text and say, see, there it is very clearly. Jesus is physically present in the supper. But you see, when you study the context of this passage, what you see is that's not actually the case. Paul's contrast is not taking, partaking of the physical Christ versus partaking of a non-physical Christ. Paul's concern here is to talk about participation with demons or participation with Christ. And so what he does is using the example of Israel in the desert, he says, you Corinthians, don't do this. Remember, the Corinthian church, just taking a step back for a second, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues. I don't know if you've, I'm, I'm sure you've heard a sermon series on 1 Corinthians here at this church or, or Sunday school series or something at some point. But if you don't remember, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues. Right? They had all kinds of issues with sexual immorality. They had family members sleeping with family members. And they had uh, all kinds of problems with spiritual gifts, church discipline, church offices. I mean, the gospel. Right? They had all kinds of issues. And one of the issues that Paul deals with in Corinthians is this issue of Christians, or at least people who claim to be Christians, partaking in worship of, with pagan gods or participating in the sacrifices to pagan deities. And Paul says, look, look at what happened to Israel. When Israel got involved in this, when they were part of the visible church, they were baptized, they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a sense, and yet when they went over here and started offering sacrifices to idols, they were not participating with Christ. Rather, they're participating in the activities of demons. And you Corinthians, I don't want any of that for you, Paul says. This is why he's so clear in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see Paul's contrast there. In other words, he's distinguishing the fact that when you come to the Lord's table with an unbelieving heart, you're not receiving Christ. 
Rather, when you come with faith, you are receiving Christ. Alright? Now, with all of that being said, some will maybe take this text a little bit too far and will attempt to say, okay, you see here, Paul is not saying that believers in any way partake of the body and blood of Christ. This is purely metaphorical. There's nothing of substance here in terms of the the presence of Christ in the supper. And that would be to take this one step too far because Paul's not saying that, that the Israelites or that the Corinthians are merely symbolically participating with demons. No, he's saying they really are involved in a spiritual activity. There is a spiritual, if you will, a spiritual demonic presence when sacrifices are offered to idols. And so taking that the other direction, then Paul here is emphasizing there is a real spiritual activity happening when believers partake of the Lord's Supper. This is why in classic Reformed theology, we talk about the Lord's Supper being a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is not only a sign. We've talked about this. The Lord's Supper is also a seal. And when we talk about the Supper being a seal, what we have in mind is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit sealing the promises of God in the gospel on the hearts of the one who's partaking of the seal. So this is why when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we talk about the Lord's Supper being a means of grace to strengthen and to nourish the faith of the believer. It's not just a sign. It is a real participation in Christ. There is a real spiritual work happening in the Supper through the Holy Spirit. It's not just a sign. And so that's why this text has often been a classical text that Reformed theologians have appealed to to say, in the Lord's Supper, there is a real participation with Christ. Now, with that being said, We also have to recognize here, Paul doesn't in this text say that we participate in the divine nature of Christ, although that is true. Notice what Paul's emphasizing here. We participate in the blood and in the body. You see, some people, when they hear our doctrine of the Lord's Supper, when they hear that we believe in only the spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper, they are very quick to criticize our view and to say, ah, see, you Calvinists, you Presbyterians, you guys are cutting Christ in half because all you get is the divine nature of Christ in the Supper. And this is where we, as the Reformed people, want to gently push back on that criticism and say, hold on a second, Our theology does embrace not just the divine nature of Christ in the Supper, but we also receive the human nature of Christ in the Supper. We have a real participation with the body and the blood of Christ here, according to Paul. Now, we also at the same time, while we recognize and we maintain that in the Supper, we receive the human nature of Christ. We reject that his human nature is physically present in the supper. Now you're like, whoa, this is getting really 
really precise. Well, how are we getting this? Well, here's how Calvin explained it. And by the way, when Calvin explained the supper, he wrote a treatise on the Lord's Supper, a very good treatise. I have it on my shelf at home. And in Calvin's treatment of the supper, he explains this reality that in the Reformed faith, we believe not just that we partake of the divine nature of Christ in the supper, but also the human, even though the human nature is not physically present. And when Calvin wrote this treatise, Martin Luther read it. You know what Luther said when he read it? He was like, this, these Reformed people aren't so bad. He did not think it, it, it was a, a big problem for him. Now, I can't authenticate the historicity of that statement of Luther. I haven't found it in his writings. I've just heard historians talking about it. But this ought to give some some pause and say, hold on a second. Let's take a look at what Calvin had to say on the Lord's Supper. Because, you know, it's a legitimate criticism if we really are dividing the person of Christ. We We never want to do that. That's a heresy called Nestorianism. We never want to divide the person of Christ. But rather, Reformed theologians throughout the centuries, including one of my favorites, Hermann Bovink, makes it very clear that Reformed theology holding to Scripture believes that we not only maintain that in the supper we partake of the divine nature of Christ, but we also partake of the human nature of Christ. And we do that on the basis of this text. Well, not just this text, but this is one of them. Because when Paul wants to emphasize our participation with Christ, He does so, not just by saying participation in Christ, but he says participation in the body and blood of Christ. Now, how is this possible? Why do we say this? How do we partake truly of the body and blood of Christ if Christ is not physically present in the supper, but rather is in heaven? We'll look at this question in more detail later on in our our theological section in a couple of weeks. But just... As a sampling, here's what Calvin said, and I think this is exactly right. What Calvin said is that the human Christ, right, Christ humanity, his body, is in heaven. Right? Scripture says Jesus, after, after he rose again, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. His humanity is there. He is not on earth in his human nature. Now, he is everywhere in his divine nature, but his human nature is in heaven. That's where his body is. It's not in the supper. It's in heaven. What Calvin said is that in the Lord's Supper, the special work of the Holy Spirit is to unite the human partaker of the bread and wine with the human Christ. And so the Holy Spirit then acts as a kind of channel or a kind of conduit or, or a communication that connects us partaking the supper in our humanness with the human Christ who is in heaven. In other words, there's a spiritual communication between the two. And the reason why Calvin said this is so important and why Reformed theologians have said this is important is because the benefits of Christ in the gospel, the benefits of Christ communicated to us in the Lord's Supper are not benefits that Christ merited merely by his divine nature. But Jesus, as a true man, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we couldn't die, paid the price that we couldn't pay. In other words, we don't just need half of Christ, if you will. Calvin said we need the whole Christ. 
And so in the Lord's Supper, we partake of his divine nature because he is spiritually present. And we partake of his human nature by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit connects us with the human Christ who is in heaven. And when Calvin said that, what he, what he explained is that when we say that we're connected with the human Christ, it's not that we eat him because he's physically present, like the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics hold to. But rather, we partake of the true body and blood of Christ because we partake of the benefits that the human Christ has accomplished for us. Now, some of you, I hope, uh, are sort of getting the, the picture here. Others, maybe this is sort of like, wow, this is way out there. <laughs> you kind of lost me 10 minutes ago. And I, I grant that. It's, this is a, some very technical stuff, a little bit difficult to grasp sometimes. We'll talk about it in more detail and hopefully with more examples, and, and I'll expand on it a little bit uh, in a couple of weeks when we deal with it later. But just to summarize in one sentence here, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we partake of the supper, we are truly partaking of Christ. And Paul's concern here is to emphasize we're partaking of the whole Christ, his deity and his humanness. And in that, we receive all of the benefits of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. So we'll talk more about that in future weeks. Uh, are there any, we're out of time, are there any questions briefly? Uh, I, I assume there probably are a lot of questions that maybe you don't even know how to ask the question. But <laughs> are there any other questions uh, before we close this morning? All right. Again, we'll talk more about this later. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, we know that some things in your word are very easy to understand. Uh, we can grasp that Christ died for our sins. Uh, that's a great, simple truth of the gospel that even a young child can understand. And we thank you for the great simplicity of much of your word. Lord, we also recognize, as the Apostle Peter noted, that some things in Scripture are difficult to understand. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your peace and patience on those things. That we wouldn't give up because they're difficult, but that we would seek to learn and to understand. Because, Lord, we know that nothing worth having comes easy. And, Lord, we pray that you would work deeply in our minds and in our hearts. And that we would understand your word. And uh, that it would change the way we live. And in all of this, that it would help us to clear away the clutter regarding the Lord's Supper. And that when we partake of it, when we celebrate that meal together as a church, that we would be thinking about these things and that we would recognize that when we partake of that bread, when we partake of that wine, we don't just get half of you. We don't just get half of Christ. But we get the whole Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would rest in the whole work of Christ and that we would love him. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of that Jesus Christ. Amen.